This is quite the quote from Spurgeon here. We've been talking a lot. We're actually in the middle of a series on Galatians. So I know, I know that's not Luke 15, but we're actually sort of an inception thing. We're going levels into Galatians. And we got to a point where in Galatians, Paul says we should call God Father. We said, whoa, what does that look like? Let's look at the Father in this beautiful, amazing parable. And a lot of what we're looking at in Galatians is the idea that it's grace and not appeasement. But it's so hard for us as humans because appeasement is what we want. We want to be responsible for our own salvation. We like to worship ourselves. And so appeasement theology is just a backdoor way of worshiping ourselves without saying we're worshiping ourselves, right? And it's been around forever and it's the hardest thing to shake is this appeasement theology. And the older brother, the oldest son, is a classic example of what appeasement theology can do and what it looks like. So he has this great speech he gives to his father. I call this the plaintive anthem of the self-righteous hypocrite, which I know is a little harsh. But here's the thing. In my more honest moments, this is actually what I call it, my plaintive anthem. <clears throat> I'm sorry if I get emotional this morning. This is just a tough one for me. Because this is, uh, for so many years, this, this was me. And it still is in many levels. And I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to let God love me. And, and I thought it was just such a perfect Christianity. And it's just so... Anyway, I've been suggesting for a few weeks now that the older son, if we're courageous enough, is a mirror that we can look into. It reveals to us the corners of our own souls. So that's why I like to call this my plaintive anthem because it reminds me that I don't have the escape of thinking I'm not a self-righteous hypocrite. So this... This has nothing to say to me, right? So I want to encourage all of us today. Try to be courageous. And even if we need to look in this mirror the way we would look at a total eclipse of the sun, maybe indirectly or maybe through dark glasses, that's okay. Because I think any glance at all will start opening the doors of grace to us and the possibilities of more authentic human being by going through those doors. So last time we discovered that the older son's refusal to come into the party was as grotesque or even worse a violation of the relationship between he and his father as was the younger sons at the beginning of the story. And I know we have some visitors today, so please know we're like eight weeks into this, but all of it can be found online if you do want to catch up, or after today you might be like, nope, I don't want to hear anything else you have to say about that, and that's fine. <laughs> but either way. So it was absolutely as grotesque, maybe more grotesque a violation of relationship what the older son did by refusing to come into the party. We looked at that last week. We also learned that the father's coming out to entreat the son in this situation, in this time and culture, was as costly, was as a costly and a self-sacrificing display of grace, mercy, and love as was his running through the village streets to the younger son. Interestingly, the reaction to the father's love couldn't have been more different. It couldn't have been more different. We learned that when the younger son was confronted with such profound love, he responded with pure repentance and in genuine humility received all the grace the father offered him. He allowed himself to be dressed in the father's robes and to be brought home. 
It was beautiful. It was a most amazing picture of reconciliation. And as Bailey so poignantly points out, it would be the driving force behind the son's faithfulness for the rest of his life. Now, I'm going to pull this quote up by Kenneth Bailey, which might be one of the most important quotes I've ever read. Um, when Rich and I found this, this was years ago we found this quote in the book that Bailey, Kenneth Bailey is a Middle Eastern scholar, by the way. I, I, I use him a lot. He lived in the villages of the Middle East for over 40 years. He gets the culture and the understanding. This, this might be one of the most important things that, that we look at because it really helps explain what is Christian living? Where does it come from? What's the motive for Christian living? Okay, so I'm going to let Bailey talk about it first, and then we're going to sort of be exploring the essence of this throughout the day as we look at the older, as we look at the older son. <laughs> After what has happened, he will not serve out of fear of punishment, nor will he labor in hope of rewards. Imagine a conversation between the son and some stranger in the field. As the son labors long beyond the call of duty, the stranger says to him, Why are you trying to impress your father? What do you want from him now? The son replies in anger, You have not heard my story. If you had, you wouldn't talk that way. We can see implicit in this parable the right attitude and motivation for Christian living. Fear of punishment and desire for rewards are motives that have no place in the heart of a son reconciled to his father by the father's self-emptying love. Ugh. Capturing this truth can change our lives. I've been trying to capture this truth for the last 20 years. Because all I thought it was, was I was supposed to follow God out of fear or reward. I didn't know I was responding to unbelievable love for me just the way I was. God loves us. And the only proper response to that is to live as loved children. We can forsake the myth of appeasement theology that we have to live to avoid God's punishment and or to earn his rewards, which only leads us down roads towards being self-righteous hypocrites anyway. That's all that's at the end of that road. And instead, we can receive grace. And this is something the older son couldn't do. Now we'll dive into the speech here. So he starts off, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Let's get some cultural context. One never starts a conversation with, with the father without addressing him properly. Never in this culture and time. Ever, ever, ever would you ever start a conversation with your father without addressing him properly. Even the younger son, who, I, I don't know why this got named the parable of the prodigal son, because it's, it's, it's a parable of two lost sons. It's a parable of an amazingly loving father. But even the younger son at least still had that much respect for his father. Here, here's the younger son at the very beginning. <laughs> He's about to grotesquely violate relationship, but he still says, Father. Okay? You just don't. So right as the speech opens, we see how far away this older son is. He's so far away from relationship with his dad. And then he says this, slaving for you. Well, really? Who owns the estate? So in the beginning, we, we looked at this in that time and place, when the son asked for his share of the estate, the father then divided the estate up. He owns the estate. It's his estate. And even if he is complaining that the father is part of the family that he works so hard to take care of, isn't that what love does? Takes care of the family? 
Isn't that what it means to be a son or daughter? But again, here is a central issue between appeasement theology and grace theology. Are we children of God? Rebellious, maybe. But still loved by our Father who seeks us. Or are we indentured servants? Are we children or are we indentured servants? This kid has the concept of familial relationship so confused in his mind, he has devastated his relationship with his father so completely, he can't even see his own hypocrisy. He then continues, and never disobeyed your orders. All right, two things. Number one, I don't doubt this. I don't doubt this at all. He probably did keep every command of the dads. But he is claiming this perfection of sonship in the midst of a grotesque display of contempt, disrespect, anger, and outright hostility towards his father. Isn't that a violation of what sonship really is? (laughs) Bailey finds a brilliant connection between this and what the Pharisees did in John 18, 28. This is, this is one of the saddest moments in the entire story. So they've, they've arrested Jesus. They're trying to get him killed. But now it's early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Oh, the beauty of obedience. <laughs> Bailey says about this scene, and about the older son. So all through history, in every major religious tradition, very religious people have committed evil acts in the name of that religion, confident that by so doing, they are fulfilling its highest demands. Jesus is here depicting a classical insider in any legal religious system who can destroy the deepest and most sacred relationships in the process of keeping of the law expected of an insider. In the process, Jesus is defining critical aspects of the nature of evil that can never be understood, controlled, or overcome by any system of law, however good. And that leads to the second thing about this claim of the older sons. What is sin, really? See, when we forget that we are all sinners, regardless of the individual ways sin may manifest itself in our lives, that is when we start judging others, pointing fingers, and embracing self-righteous hypocrisy. See, you can't very well judge someone who does the same thing as you, right? Now, of course, there's always maniacal, hyper-self-righteous hypocrites that do that. There was a famous situation years ago when some really high leader was every Sunday preaching against a certain sin and then it came out that that's because he was participating in that specific sin. So there's always a few maniacs. But the rest of us, we're not like that, right? We don't judge people for doing what we do. Let's be honest. Okay? We never do that. What we do is, oh my gosh, they're doing that? They need to be kicked out of the church. Because we would never do that. But if sin is all the same, and I think Jesus made that clear with his famously misunderstood bit about lusting is the same as sleeping with someone. 
then perhaps we should be very careful in how we judge and call for discipline and excommunication. Maybe we shouldn't be involved in any of those things. Isn't this why Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged? See, if we understand the sin in our own lives, no matter how small we might think it is, because the sin in our own lives is always very small, but if we understand that sin is every bit as deserving of the exact same judgment as sin in others' lives, no matter how big we think their sin is, then we must understand that if that person can be judged for sin, we can too. Do we really want to go there? See, that's the danger of appeasement theology. We think we're appeasing God because we're so good, but we're not appeasing God. It's impossible to appease God. Sadly, the older son loves to go there, and now we're going to see how it reveals more of his hypocrisy. Oh, that was Jesus, Judge John. He says, you never gave me even a goat. So, remember what the younger son said, did to violate his relationship with the father? He asked for his share of the estate. Okay? While the father was still alive. And what we saw in that is that he wished the father dead. That's basically what that would have meant in that time and culture. He wished the father dead so he could live his own life the way he wanted to. That's what it was all about. This is the beginning of the whole story. This is, this is where our whole story begins. We have this story in which we tell, in which God said to Adam and Eve, everything is yours, just don't do that. And they basically said, yeah, well, that's exactly what we want to do. We wish you were dead so we could do what we wanted, right? So there's how the whole story begins, and that's what we continue to do. No, God, we just want to do what we want, so we want you dead. So the younger son wanted the father dead, and for that, the older son has been judging his brother. Ever since the younger son left, the older son has been judging him. Well, what's the older son really complaining about here? He wants to do what he wants with the estate. He wants to kill whatever animals he wants to kill whenever he wants to kill them. He, in effect, wants exactly what he judges the younger son for wanting, his father to be dead so he can live life his way. Self-righteousness is always like that. We always judge others for exactly what ultimately is wrong with us. Further, he's accusing the father here of loving his brother more. Did you catch that? Oh, you never gave me a go. We have two kids. We used to hear that all the time from my daughter. You love Noah more. <laughs> no, we don't. Well, you never did that for me. Well, that's because you're a girl and you're different. <laughs> that was so gender biased. <laughs> Doesn't matter, it's worked so far. <laughs> 21 and no boyfriend. <laughs> if I get 10 more years, we'll be fine. She still calls up from Minnesota. Is no over Katie's today? I never did that. No, you didn't. <laughs> oh, I'm a horrible dad. <laughs> We're going to send this to her. Yeah. <laughs> She'll be saying, preach it. Amen, you're a horrible dad. 
Oh, see why this, this is just, what is this, like our eighth or ninth week? We've got to get out of this parable. <laughs> so many self-righteous folks have never done anything so horribly wrong, or if we did, it's been so long that we've played the part of a perfectly obedient Christian We've forgotten the horrible things in our past, and so this is the rub for us, right? So now the idea of grace really seems unfair because it suggests God must love that sinner more. That's the worst part of living this appeasement theology out. You get really good at it. You get really good at following the rules. You get really good at being a good Christian, and then God all of a sudden loves everybody, and wow, you hate that. Think about that. You hate that God loves people. How crazy is that? That's why that video was so convicting this morning, wasn't it? And I love the way Justice did that. Mother Teresa Stalin. (laughs) It's the parable of laborers. Everyone got the same wage whether they worked all day or for five minutes. Well, that's not fair. I hate that parable. (laughs) But that's why it's so hard to believe in grace. That's why grace theology is so hard. That's why it's lost its way. It's, it's, it's been kicked out of church. It's so unfair. Everyone here has someone that has hurt them. I know that. You're all old enough. You've lived in this world for any amount of time. People hurt you bad. It's what we do to each other. Well, God loves them as much as he loves you. That hurts, doesn't it? For a while. Doesn't that hurt? God loves that guy that Shot up that Texas church last week. That doesn't make sense. That's why it's so hard to believe in. So I teach the gospel and I teach grace. Anybody can do appeasement. Believe in a God that loves. It's hard. Maybe that's why Jesus talked a narrow pass and a few travelers. He wasn't being a jerk. It's just hard. But while grace is unfair, it doesn't mean God loves us differently. He loves us all the same. And here's one more terrifying thing about the older son's hypocrisy in this accusation of the uh, father's favoritism. Bailey points this out nicely. He says... uh, The father just demonstrated for the oldest son the same quality of compassionate, self-giving love that he demonstrated earlier in the day for the younger son. In this public demonstration for the older son, the father offers a gift that is of far greater worth than any goat or calf, grace. Another painfully sad aspect of the son's response is that as the father is making this great gift, the older son is accusing his father of failing to love. And then he ends with this, so I could celebrate with my friends. And here we have the silent shamefulness of self-righteousness. I want you to read this carefully and think about this, okay? The father is throwing a party to celebrate the finding of his long-lost son. His brother. But all he is thinking about is parties with his friends. Read this carefully. The entire village is basically at this party. We looked at that. He killed a fatty calf. That's going to feed 200 people. This kid's own family 
his relatives, his neighbors, were out to his party. Are these not his friends? Think about this. His self-righteousness has caused him to even deny his own. If God is our father, then we are all his children. Does exclusivity, judging of other churches, judging other Christians, and having nothing to do with other Christians, really make sense? Does it? Of course, perhaps this explains why it's so easy to embrace a narrowly defined understanding of what it means to be a real Christian. It makes it easier to disown our own family because if we have this narrow definition of what it means to be a real Christian or what it means to be saved, what it means to be doctrinally sound, well, then we can rationalize our exclusivity in judging of others as not really going against the family because they're not our real brothers or sisters. If I do get to heaven, I, I, I can't wait to see the look on my face and others' faces when they realize who's there, when I realize who's there. When we buy into this idea, this appeasement theology, this righteousness, this self-righteous, we can surround ourselves with those who only think and act exactly as we do. And we can allow our self-righteous hypocrisy to blind ourselves to the fact that the family party is going on inside while we remain outside with our so-called friends. And that's the most dangerous bit of appeasement theology. I was a good Christian for years. I'm only thinking it's been rather recently I've been inside. So, boy, do I hate mirrors. <laughs> We're going to finish looking at this next week. Yes, I know I'm going to put myself through another week of hell to study this anthem. But for now, I want to finish with this thought. And this is the best part of it all. Even after this speech, which instead of being a defense of self is really a massive revelation of all that is wrong with the older son. The father still keeps on seeking to bring him home. Oh. It's amazing, really. Next week, we're going to see that language he uses when he says, my son. So the dangers of mirrors is really the beauty of mirrors. See, if we really allow them to expose our deepest flaws, then maybe we will finally become like the younger son, humble enough to simply receive the grace God offers us and live in the party. Remember, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. Amen. I'm going to play a song now that uh, Bono wrote. And it's this beautiful look at coming to terms with how much 
he is loved by God. And he uses the imagery of a lover, of a brother, and of a father. But here's the interesting thing. In the imagery of the father, he knows he's the older brother in this parable. It's hard. It's hard, but it's beautiful. And I hope it resonates. And as we listen to it, maybe we can just be thinking about how much God loves us. And we don't need to play the part of a self-righteous hypocrite.